0: 4th, 1986, Gary Tyndall was being tried on charges of robbery in the California courtroom of Judge Armando Rodriguez. In the midst of the trial, Tyndall asked the judge if he could go to the restroom. Well, he was escorted by two guards to the men's room who waited outside the door. But just as Tyndall had hoped, this courtroom restroom had a drop ceiling. Tyndall quickly shimmied up the plumbing and he scurried down the crawl space heading south. Well, he made it about 30 feet when suddenly one of the panels broke under him. He dropped to the floor. And surprise, surprise, guess where Gary Tyndall ended up? He had fallen right back in the courtroom of Judge Armando Rodriguez. His escape attempt had failed miserably. Well, Gary Tyndall and the prophet Jonah have a lot in common. Both men fled the inevitable. Both were on the run from the authorities. Both came crashing down at the judge's feet back where they began. The story of Jonah proves that you can't outrun God. Try as you might, no one escapes God's purposes or reach. God has providential ways of catching the runaway And forcing him or her to deal with his will. Last week we read in chapter 1 verse 17, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And God can prepare circumstances in our lives to catch our attention. The Lord knows how to place fragile ceiling tiles in our path. If need be, he gives us time in the belly of the great fish. God can manufacture a dark place for us where all we see is ourselves and our sin. He can turn up the heat of a situation to melt our pride. He can expose us to the gastric juices of brokenness. They're designed to soften our heart and make us digestible to others. The story of Jonah has much to teach you and me. In chapter 1, we find our reluctant hero in the belly of the ship. He was trying his best to run from God's call in chapter 2 the scene shifts Jonah is in the belly of the fish he's repenting of his sin now he's running back to God in chapter 3 we're gonna find Jonah in the city of Nineveh he's finally running with God doing God's will you could say he's finally in the belly of God's will and then in chapter 4 the story takes a twist For Jonah returns to his bigotry and prejudice. He's bellyaching over God's desire to show mercy. In the end, we find him running ahead of God. Now here's a convenient outline for the book of Jonah, running away from God, running back to God, running with God, and then running ahead of God. We left off last week at the end of chapter 2, suddenly a burp marks a new beginning for Jonah. The great fish pukes the prophet Jonah out onto dry land. Now in chapter 3, God renews his call to Jonah to preach to the city of Nineveh. And this time, the prophet obeys. Chapter 3 begins. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, and note that expression, the second time. Hey, would you celebrate with me? That expression, the second time. Those words speak volumes about the grace and the mercy of our Lord. God was willing to give this reluctant, rebellious, runaway prophet a second time. Queen Elizabeth I, she ruled England and Ireland from 1558 to 1603. She was a skillful ruler who brought peace to the British Isles. On one occasion, Edward de Vere Earl of Oxford was bowing low before the queen when all of a sudden the earl accidentally broke wind, cut one right there before the queen. He was so embarrassed. In fact, for the next several years, the earl traveled abroad just to avoid another audience with the queen. Well, eventually Edward's duties forced him back home to England. The humiliated earl was brought to face the queen again. History records Queen Elizabeth's first words to him. She said, My Lord, I have forgot the fart. And if there ever was a stinker, it was Jonah. His prejudice, his pride, his selfishness, his stubbornness was a stench in the nostrils of God. Jonah's rebellion reeked to high heaven. Here was a prophet who smelled fishy long before the time he entered the belly of the fish. Jonah was so sour that not even the fish could keep him down. Pardon the expression, but I can't think of a more fitting label for the prophet Jonah than an old fart. That's what he was. And yet God is willing to forgive old farts. He's willing to forgive Jonah. God gave him a second time. He forgave his nauseous behavior and gave him a second chance. You know when Jesus told Peter that he should forgive his enemies not just seven times, but seven times 70 times? Always remember, he wasn't asking Pete to do anything he wasn't willing to do himself. Jonah is another proof that the God we serve is willing to forgive and give us another shot at his will. Author William Banks puts it this way, We are moved to speak of Jonah's God as the God of the second chance, but honest, sober reflection compels a saint to speak of him as the God of the 999th chance. It's God's nature to keep forgiving and forgetting he is the God of the second chance and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the 999th chance if we come to him with a humble and a broken and a sincere heart. The Lord forgives stinkers, even stinkers like you and me. Well, God said to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Now, we learn from chapter 1, verse 2, and the first time God called Jonah to go to Nineveh, that his message was one of repentance. God said, Cry out against Nineveh, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, in fairness to Jonah, this was a frightful commission. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and the Assyrians had a savage and violent reputation. The Assyrian army showed no pity on their enemies. In fact, a favorite Assyrian torture was to jab a stake up under a man's ribs, then thrust the other end into a hole in the ground. They would then laugh as the man squirmed and convulsed and gradually succumbed to the throes of death. On occasion, the Assyrians would torture their captives by tying them spread eagle onto the ground and slowly skinning them alive like you would a fish. I mean, these folks were hideous. And I'm sure Jonah was asking God, Lord, are you sure you want me to preach to the Ninevites of all people? This would be like me standing on a street corner in Mecca or in Tehran, proclaiming that Muhammad was a false prophet and Jesus is the only way to God. God had given Jonah a risky assignment. But after three days and three nights in Shamu's tummy, what could be worse? This time, when God calls the prophet, he obeys. Come what may, Jonah obeys. Verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. Notice our text says that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Ancient Nineveh was three miles long. It was a mile and a half wide. The walls were a hundred feet high and forty feet thick, wide enough to race three chariots abreast on top of the walls. The walls were also sprinkled with a thousand five hundred lofty towers. Nineveh was a magnificent city, and it was one of several large cities in the Tigris River Valley. We're told in verse 3 that Nineveh was a three-day journey in extent. In other words, it took three days to walk across metropolitan Nineveh. You see, in ancient times, a day's journey was around 22 miles. That meant that metro Nineveh was 68 miles in circumference. Estimates vary, but its population was somewhere between 600,000 and a million people, a population comparable to that of Washington, D.C. Verse 4, and Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Much of the population lived outside the downtown area in suburban Nineveh. And so that's where Jonah began to preach. And notice his message. It was brief, but oh, it was bold. It was just eight words in English, even shorter in Hebrew, a mere five words. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, a couple of points from Jonah's little sermonette. First, he mentions a period of 40 days. And in the Bible, the number 40 speaks of probation and testing. Moses was on the backside of the wilderness for how many years? 40 years. The children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. The 12 spies spent 40 days inspecting the land of Cana before reporting back to the tribes. Jesus was tested by Satan for how long? 40 days. And after Jesus' resurrection, he was seen by the disciples for 40 days before his ascension to heaven. Here's some biblical math for you. The number 40 is the product of 5 by 8. 5 is the number of grace. Eight. Is the number of revival and renewal and new beginnings. Thus, 40 denotes a period of testing and pr- a period of testing and probation that precedes the outpouring of God's grace in the form of a revival. The Ninevites heard 40 days. 40 days God would judge their city. And this is how they reasoned it. Why is he waiting 40 days? This must mean he's giving us a chance to repent. Perhaps if we do, God will have mercy and God will spare us. As we'll see, their perception and their faith in God's mercy paid off. And so the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Imagine the revival. From the king to the commoner, all the Ninevites believed God and they repented of their sin. Through this short message of Jonah, this little sermonette from Jonah, a revival sweeps across the nation, the whole city. The king of Nineveh even called for a national fast. His citizens humbled themselves in sackcloth and ashes and cried out to the one true God for mercy. Verse 6, then word came to the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covering himself with sackcloth and set in ashes. What a revival! It reached all the way to the throne, to the king's throne. Imagine our White House staff, Republican or Democrat, even the president, confessing his sin, confessing the nation's sin, humbling himself, crying out in repentance. Sadly, such a scenario boggles the imagination, doesn't it? It's hard hard to even imagine. But here, the king of Nineveh repents. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God, Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Wow, what a decree. The king issues an official ordinance calling for everyone to repent, even the animals, the horses and the mules, the cats and the dogs. They all repent in sackcloth and ashes which reminds me of the story of the Christian bear. You hear about this? This guy was out walking through the woods one day when a bear jumped out of the bush and started to chase him. Well, this bear cornered him. There was no hope. So the man fell to his knees and he started to pray, Lord, please, let this be a Christian bear. All of a sudden, he looked up, and lo and behold, the bear was on his knees praying. He thought, wow, praise the Lord. It's a Christian bear. Well, he walked up to give his brother bear a hug when all of a sudden he heard his prayer, Lord, thank you for this food that I'm about to receive. Here, even the animals repent. Verse 10 records the results. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do. God has mercy. In fact, you could make a case that this was the single greatest spiritual awakening in all human history. That's right. You know, at the Feast of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved. Yet in Nineveh, a whole city repented and turned to God. Pentecost was pint-sized compared to the Ninevite revival. We're talking the salvation of a million souls. This was truly the greatest awakening of all time. And the amazing truth is that God did it through a reluctant, prejudicial prophet named Jonah. It just goes to prove God uses us more in spite of us than because of us. When you think of it, though, what are the odds of Jonah doing what he did, of a Hebrew prophet actually turning a pagan city to the one true God. I mean, the odds of that happening are astronomical. You know, I mentioned Jonah in Nineveh would be like me in Saudi Arabia in Mecca. Not really. It would be like a Jew in Mecca. Actually, I believe there were at least four factors that contributed to Jonah's phenomenal success. Factor number one, the time was right. You see, the Assyrian king at the moment, this moment in history was a man named Ashurdan III. His reign was colored by several natural disasters that the Ninevites had interpreted as signs or as omens. An eclipse occurred during his reign, an earthquake, a famine, Several military defeats had primed the pump. These were all scary phenomena for primitive people. Their hearts were ready for a message. They were ready for Jonah's message. The time was right. Factor number two, the prophet was white. Now, my skin is light brown. My skin's Manila, But Jonah's skin was vanilla. Imagine the prophet as he entered Nineveh. He looked like a prune. He'd been in the belly of the fish for three days. And the vitamin A in the whale's gastric juices would have bleached out his skin and made it real flaky. He was a bright white flake. That's what he was. He looked like a bald Jewish albino. A frightful sight. And smell? This guy reeked. Something was fishy about this guy. He definitely would have attracted a crowd. The puked up prophet definitely got their attention. The time was right and the prophet was white. In factor three, they heard of his flight. It's interesting in Luke 11 verse 30 when Jesus refers to Jonah, he says that Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites. Evidently his story had become well known. Apparently, the Assyrians had some background information on Jonah. Maybe they knew of his racial prejudice, and yet God had loved them enough to employ some unusual means to overcome this prophet's reluctance. Though Jonah didn't, it was obvious to the Ninevites that God loved them. You know, it's also interesting that the Assyrians, they worshipped the fish god Oannes, He had the head of a man, and he had the torso of a fish. In fact, the names Oanus and Jonah are only one letter off in their original spellings. And since it was a fish that threw Jonah up onto the shore, initially it might have caused the Assyrians to think that here was the messenger of Oonus. If so, that would have provided Jonah an immediate platform from which he could teach them about the one true God of Israel. Well, the time was right, the prophet was white, they heard of his flight, and then factor number four, the Spirit of God showed his might. This is the case with all spiritual awakenings. God uses desperate circumstances, fired up, even puked out prophets, spectacular signs, but ultimately revivals are a work of God's Spirit. In chapter 2, verse 9, Jonah said it is conversion, salvation is of the Lord, and it's true. No man comes to God and embraces Jesus unless God's Spirit draws him. This was true of Jonah, it was true of the Ninevites, it's even true of you and me. In John 6, verse 44, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Every time a man or a woman is saved for eternity, it involves the power of the Holy Spirit. Make no mistake about it. You can put a banner up in front of the church and advertise a series of meetings and call them a revival, but it may or may not be a true revival. That depends on the sovereign work of God's Holy Spirit. You don't schedule a revival. You pray for one. And I hope we're all praying. Again, verse 10 tells us, Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that He had said He would bring upon them. And He did not do it. Now notice, here is another example of the Almighty God changing His mind. This is a reality that baffles the Bible scholars. God changes His mind? Certainly, there are scores of Bible verses that describe God as immutable, that he changes not. In Numbers 23 verse 19, we're told, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? On the one hand, God never relents or repents, and yet, Here, when the Ninevites repent of their sin, God relents of his judgment. Now, to be clear, the Bible does teach the immutability of God. Indeed, God never changes. Read 1 Samuel 15 verse 29. Ezekiel 24 verse 14. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6. James chapter 1 verse 17. God's plans, God's purposes are always sure. Now, I'm not always privy to what God is planning, but it is a comfort to know that regardless of life's ups and downs, God always remains the same. Yet in his dealings with mankind, there are times when God does appear as if he changes in midstream. The theologians call this an anthropomorphism. Say that three times real fast. An anthropomorphism. This is a technical term for what the scripture does when it describes the eternal God as if having human traits. Here's the classic anthropomorphism. 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro. Now obviously God doesn't have human eyes or eye sockets. And he doesn't need to look here and then look there and look here and look there. I'm sure the omniscient God sees everything at once. We really don't know how God sees. And I'm sure if he explained it to us, I doubt if we'd even be able to understand it. Thus, the Bible communicates to us in terms that we can comprehend, as if God were a man with literal eyes. The same is true when we read of the hand of the Lord or the arm of the lord i'm sure god isn't limited to 10 fingers or to two arms he's omnipotent but to help our feeble understanding he often reduces himself to human terms so we can begin to grasp his greatness and this is why the scripture speaks of god changing his mind his ways are too deep they're too nuanced they're too mysterious For us to fully grasp the interplay between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And so God dumbs it down for our own limited logic. The Bible speaks of both realities as if they were independent of each other. And yet we know they're not. God's purposes and our part in His plan. They somehow work together. But it isn't always known. Does God's plan determine our actions? Or does our actions determine God's plan? Well, for simplicity's sake, the Bible teaches both. At times we're told that God changes his mind, while at the same time we know that God never changes. Perhaps the best way to illustrate the concept is to imagine a rock in the middle of a big circle. Picture yourself moving around on the circumference of that circle. With every move you make, you change location in relationship to the rock. At one point, the rock is south of you. When you're on the other side of the circle, the rock is in the north. With each step you take, the rock seems to change, but in reality, it's not the rock that's changed. It's you that's changed in your relationship to the rock. And you see, this is us. God never changes. But at times, he seems to change because of the change in attitude we have toward him. This was the case here in our passage. Well, chapter 4 begins. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. That is, that Nineveh repented, and that God forgave them, and that God spared them. Now Jonah cops an attitude. He gets angry. And so he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. What an incredible reaction! Now, you probably thought I was exaggerating last week when I said that Jonah was a bigot, (laughs) that he hated Ninevites. But this is proof. Jonah thought that the Hebrews were the only ones entitled to know God. In fact, Jonah would rather die than share his God with Gentiles as notorious as these Assyrians. In fact, when the storm was raging, Jonah chose to drown rather than return And preach to the Ninevites and see them repent and see God forgive them. Now his original fears have come true. You see, the reason he didn't initially go to Nineveh is that he knew God. He knew God so well. He understood that if these sinners gave God any little inkling of them having a broken and repentant heart, that God would just jump at the opportunity to forgive them and save them right there on the spot. Jonah knew. And now that it's happened, it's made Jonah mad. It's made him sick. He says, it's better for me to die than to live. You know, some folks accuse Jonah. They say he didn't really know God. But really, the exact opposite is true. Jonah's problem is that he did know God. He knew him very well. He knew the enormous width and breadth of God's love, how willing and eager God is to save. There is a hymn with these lyrics. There is a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. But not even the boundaries of the sea are broad enough to take in God's incredible mercies. To realize how encompassing are the mercies of God, you have to go to the cross. And you have to see Jesus' outstretched arms. That's how wide His mercies are. Every sin and every sinner are taken into account within Jesus' outstretched arms. Here, rather than rejoice in God's salvation, Jonah resents his mercy. I'll say it again because it was so true. Jonah was an old fart. He was one sick pup. He was happy to receive God's mercies for himself. But he didn't want anyone else to benefit from them. And this brings up another point that really bears mentioning here. Many Bible scholars have pointed out that the Odyssey of Jonah is really a type of the nation Israel's story. Jonah was chosen and called by God to reach out to the Gentiles, but he was disobedient to that calling. And likewise, God wanted Old Testament Israel to be a light to the Gentiles, Instead, bigotry and prejudice seeped into their hearts. Like Jonah, they ran from God's calling, and yet God preserved them to be a witness to the nations. Eventually, the Jews were spit back up onto their own land. After Ezekiel, after Zerubbabel, during the time of Christ, but again, like Jonah, their attitude hadn't changed, and they resented God's mercies. Like Nineveh, the Gentiles repented when they heard the gospel. They came to know Jesus. They experienced revival. But the establishment Jews remained proud and disobedient, just like Jonah. The Jews in Jonah refused to draw the connection between receiving God's mercies and sharing God's mercies. And yet, this is the lesson God is about to teach Jonah. In verse 4, the Lord comes to Jonah and gently confronts his prejudice. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Now understand, this is one of God's favorite techniques in dealing with His people. He comes to us and He asks questions. You remember in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned? God came asking, Where are you? When Cain killed his brother Abel, God asked him, what is this that you have done? When God wanted to humble Job, he fired one question after another at him to prove how little Job really knew. After David's adultery with Bathsheba, the prophet Nathan asked him, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? And on and on I could go. God loves to stir up our thinking by asking us questions. And in the remainder of this book, God asked Jonah a series of three questions. Verse 5, So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. Was it right for Jonah to be angry? Obviously, the answer was no. No. That wasn't Jonah's answer. Jonah was still hoping that God would send down fire from heaven and like Sodom, singe this city. He's still wanting fireworks. He's expecting God to send Nineveh up in smoke. That's why Jonah keeps his distance here. He climbs a hill east of the city, builds himself a little shelter from the sun, and he sits in the shade waiting on God to judge the Assyrians. Yet it won't be for another 150 years before God judges Nineveh. The prophet Nahum prophesied against Assyria prior to their fall to the Babylonians in 612 BC. You see, Jonah's prejudicial heart was way ahead of God. He was running ahead of God. Much to Jonah's chagrin, Nineveh's repentance at his preaching... Bought them a century and a half reprieve. How would you like to have a pastor like Jonah? Would you go to his church for long? Probably not. A pastor you knew hated you and despised the fact that God had saved you? A preacher who stayed as far away from you as possible because he expected at any moment fire to fall from heaven on top of your head? I and mean, this is how Jonah's treating the Ninevites. This was how he was praying for them. This was the kind of preacher that God sent to Nineveh, and remarkably, God still used him mightily. The Syrians were saved, as I said, more in spite of Jonah than because of Jonah. This is why Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Hey, Nineveh believed a man who hated them, Jonah, while the Pharisees rejected Jesus, a man who loved them enough to die in their place. And as Jesus said, these Ninevites will be called to testify against the Pharisees in the day of judgment. Verse 6 tells us, And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Now this was probably a palm. The date palms in the Tigris Valley grow 8 to 10 feet high. They have large elephant ear leaves and a tender stalk. This plan is common in Palestine, in India, in parts of Africa. In fact, the palm is the symbol on Iraqi coins. The ruins of Nineveh today are located in northern Iraq, outside the city of Mosul. Their daytime temperatures can reach as high as 125 to 130 degrees And so here, God prepared Jonah some supernatural shade. Again, God is being merciful to Jonah. Overnight, a leafy palm grows eight to ten feet and serves this pouting prophet as sort of a beach umbrella. Gives him some shade from the sun. Jonah certainly didn't deserve this blessing, but he received it. He enjoyed it. He was even grateful for it. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint Then he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Well, he's always got the suicide wish. Again, the prophet Jonah wishes that he were dead. This man had such a grim outlook on life. Rather than endure a difficulty, his first reaction was to check out. One night, his plant grows up, provides him shade. The next night, a hungry worm eats his plant. 24 hours earlier, Jonah was so surprised by the plant. It was a gift of God's grace. He was so happy. He was so thankful. But now, a day later, he's saying that he deserved that shade. He's now upset. God had no right to take it from him. In verse 9, God again asked him a question. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And again, God approaches him gently, and he said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. Wow. Where did the humility go? Where did the gratitude go? Overnight, it's gone. Even after receiving grace from God, Jonah treated it as if it were a blessing to which he was entitled. Don't make that mistake. No one received greater grace than Jonah, but he was a legalist to the core. It was all about what he deserved in his mind. The palm lived 24 hours, but in that short time, it became his palm. How dare God mess with his plant? He stopped appreciating God's grace. He became a legalist. He started thinking he deserved what he'd gotten. You know, it's interesting how some people, you know, the plant became his plant. He got attached to that plant. And it's interesting how some people, in the absence of a love for, human, for other humans, for human relationship, they get attached to plants and to animals. Some folks get obsessed with their plants or their flowers. Have you ever seen a childless couple or maybe a widow or a widower? become obsessed with a pet. It's as if the dog or the cat becomes an emotional substitute for their loved one. Former Atlanta columnist Louis Grizzard, he was a brilliant writer, but, se- but several failed marriages revealed that he was not quite as successful in personal relationships. But he, did, he was close to his dog, Catfish. And Grizzard once said this about his dog. He says, a dog doesn't care where you've been, who you've been with, or what you've been doing. A dog is just glad you're home. You can't say that about a lot of people. And of course you can't. Human relationships are more complex than life with a dog. And I once lived next door to a neighbor who was attached to her yard. She was an older lady and literally lived for her lawn. So when the neighborhood kids went running through her yard, she complained about them matting down the grass. No kidding. She managed to make an enemy out of just about everybody on our street because of her silly yard. It's sad when flowers and when grass become more important to a person than people. Jonah got attached to a plant. Why? Because he hated people. He had pushed away people. He was trying to escape people, so he got attached to a plant. Here God rebukes him. For loving his silly plant more than he loved the Ninevites that God had saved. Remember, the grass withers, the flower fades. But it's the word of God in people's souls that live forever. It's your neighbor that is going to heaven or to hell. Your petunias are going to turn back to dirt. People should be our priority. Let me go ahead and say it. Perhaps someone here tonight needs to hear it. People are more important than your dog or cat or hamster or goldfish. Perhaps you sit all day playing video games. Or maybe you enjoy cross-stitching for hours or painting or reading your books or working on cars or hitting golf balls. None of these activities are evil in and of themselves but use them as a way to escape people, and they become wrong. Only God is more important than people. God loves Ninevites, not palm trees. And just as Jonah was surrounded by Ninevites, so are you. Let me ask you, are you a plant person? Are you a pet person? Or are you a people person? If you love God, you'll be a people person. When Minnesota Twins slugger Harmon Killebrew was inducted into baseball's Hall of Fame, Harmon told a story about his father. The elder Killebrew would often play pitch with the two boys out in the front yard. On one occasion, Harmon's mom complained about the boys wearing out the grass. Mr. Killebrew reminded his wife, "Honey, we're raising boys, not grass." Always remember, it's people. Not objects that really matter. Well, verse 10 tells us, But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock? God planted in Jonah's life something trivial, but something that he enjoyed. And then when it withered, it revealed what was truly important that it wasn't the plant, but it was people that mattered. But Jonah had become so attached to the plant that he had withdrawn from the people that God loved. In fact, Jonah cared more about the demise of his stupid plant than he did the salvation of nearly a million people. That was Jonah. In fact, God's final attempt at softening Jonah's heart and bearing his prejudice was an appeal to the children of Nineveh. God asked him, Is it not right that I pity the 120,000 persons who have not yet learned to differentiate between their right hand and their left hand? In other words, Jonah, what about the kids? There are 120,000 of them in Nineveh. Don't you care about these innocent children? Don't you care that they'll grow up to be pagans? That they'll die and go to hell? Don't you want to see revival come to Nineveh? If anything can soften a heart, it should be the plight of a little child. Today in Jerusalem, Palestinian panhandlers, they'll use the kids, the innocent children, to beg for money. The kids approach you with those sad eyes and they ask for help. It's hard to refuse. But here God is trying the same approach on Jonah. He mentions the innocent children to squeeze Jonah's heart and try to ooze out at least a few drops of compassion. And perhaps we should ask ourselves the same question. What about the children? You know, there are organizations that can feed a needy child for $20 a month. Yet we spend more than that on dog food or even grass seed. Have we become a bit hard-hearted? Did God's efforts change Jonah's heart? We don't know. The book leaves us hanging. But that's the point. It leaves us with the question about our own hearts. Do we care about the people that God cares about? Or are we wrapped up in our own prejudices so much so that we can't hear the voices of legitimate cries for help? Have we become immune even to the cries of the children? Are we so busy petting our dogs and watering our plants that we don't have time for the people that Jesus came to save? Don't waste your life sitting in the shade of trivialities. God cares about you, thus you need to care about people. Serve and love people. Yes, helping people is more difficult and a lot messier than tilling your garden and watering your plants or even cleaning up after your dog, but in the end, it's far more rewarding. Don't be a Jonah, be a Jesus. Don't be a griper, be a giver. Don't just help your pets and plants grow, help people grow. Don't be a dead end for God's mercies. Spread the love. In the end, Jonah's outcome remains a mystery. We do know that archaeologists have identified a mound near the ancient ruins of Nineveh called Nebi Yunus, which is the local expression for the prophet Jonah. This mound was so venerated among the locals that they prohibited the site from actually being explored. It contained the reputed tomb of Jonah, which would indicate that perhaps he actually died in Nineveh. That might mean that Jonah laid down his prejudices and began to love the Assyrians and stayed there to help them grow in their faith. This is why the site was so respected. sad. But in 2014, ISIS fighters blew up the tomb of Jonah. Though the prophet Jonah is revered by Islam, ISIS destroyed the tomb and the mosque that housed it as an assault on the role that Jonah plays in Christianity. They know that Jesus pointed to Jonah as proof, as a type of his resurrection. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 12? As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. ISIS and radical Islam's hatred for Jesus and Christianity caused the attack on Jonah's memory because it reflects back in its proof of the resurrection of Jesus. Let me sort of wrap this all up with an observation from an author, Lloyd Ogilvie. He writes this, Michelangelo's painting in the Sistine Chapel at the Vatican portrays the prophets apostles, and patriarchs. Of all the faces he painted, none has a more radiant countenance than Jonah. Ogilvy surmises, we wonder if Michelangelo knew something we do not know about what happened to Jonah after the sudden debt close of his biography. Why this radiant face? Why this face full of love? Did the Renaissance artist Know that Jonah had been set free from his prejudices, had fallen in love with God, and had began to love his fellow man. That's certainly how I would like to remember Jonah. Remember, the book of Jonah is chock full of miracles. We often think of this. It's not just the great fish. I mean, miracles are in the book of Jonah from beginning to end. There was that storm at sea that God prepared. The great fish, of course. The overnight plant. The hungry worm. The sudden east wind. All these were miracles from God. But the greatest miracle God ever works is when he transforms a bigot into a big-hearted person. That's what we hope happened to Jonah that's what we trust happening is happening to us